All right, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given to us. Uh, This is a day that you've made, and so you've given it to us to rejoice and be glad in it. We do recognize, uh, as in every day, that our lives are in your hands, and that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so we would ask that you would cause us to do your will today, and we know that what you'd have us to do right now is to study your word. So give us the energy and the strength and the focus and humility to do that in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray that as your word is opened, you would speak by your spirit with clarity and power. And we pray that as you do that, you would glorify your son in our midst and that you would change our thinking. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so I want to give a little bit of background. We're, in a, we're, we're just going to do an overview of this next section today because, because of the limited amount of time we have. Um, we're in this section that really goes from 13 to 27, chapter 13 through 27. And if you look at the commentaries on Isaiah, they will frequently talk about how unusual this section is, how it doesn't seem to fit. 1 through 12, um, we saw was this really great introduction to the book. Um, It kind of laid out all the big themes. There are some famous texts, the call of Isaiah, uh, here am I, send me, and, and, you know, the the virgin birth, uh, Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God. So that... That fits together, and everyone recognizes that it fits together, and it sort of fits with those big themes. Then when you get a little further in the book, you have some historical material that talks about specific things that happened to different kings, most particularly Hezekiah, but it's not just Hezekiah. There are other kings as well. And then you get into this latter section of the book, this this sort of final piece uh, of the book that is really, uh, in, in Isaiah 40 to 66, that is really oriented around the messianic promise, the messianic hope. That's where we get Isaiah 53 and all these various servant songs, which we'll, we'll have time to look at a little bit later. And then these great promises of new creation. So all, all these things fit, but this middle section, which is a pretty long section, 13 to 27, is, is, kind of, is kind of unusual. And one of the reasons why it stands out is because it's, Isaiah, remember, is in Judah. He's in Jerusalem. And he's, he's ministering during the, um, during the reign of three kings. And, but this isn't aimed primarily at Judah, but it must have been preached in Judah. So in other words, um, you know, there, there are people who say, uh, I, I, don't, I don't hold to this, but there are people who say in church, you know, you never talk about anyone outside of the room. Never, never talk about the world out there. Just speak about those in here as a way of being sort of missional. Uh, but Isaiah doesn't do that. Isaiah is in Jerusalem talking about all these other nations who aren't, as it were, in the room. Um, and he does it for very specific reasons, as I think we'll see. But at first glance, you could kind of wonder, you know, why is he preaching a sermon about Egypt when he's basically preaching it to people around the neighborhoods of Jerusalem? Why does God give him that oracle at this time? So there are questions that emerge from this, but I think... Uh, we're going to get to try to answering those questions because I think there is a really definite reason why he preaches about people outside the room. Um, but, but first I want to show you the structure of it and, and then tell you a little bit about sort of what was going on. So we know that um, I, 
in broad brushstrokes, and we don't have to go year by year here, although we could, but in broad brushstrokes, we know that during Isaiah's reign, um, Isaiah, you know, if he's, if he's, if this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is um, Egypt, uh, and he's, he's sort of here, you know, this is not a good map, as you know, but, um, and then, and then there are always these powers over here, and, and, and the great tension in Isaiah's day is that there are really two ways to, to get from this great power to this great power, whether it's Babylon or Assyria or the Neo-Babylonians or the Neo-Assyrians, whoever it is, um, they're all in this area. And, and for them to get from here to there, um, this is right in the middle. Um, they go this way, they go this way. You can't really go this way. So, so, so Israel, as in general, and Jerusalem and Judah specifically, are caught right in between. So during Isaiah's reign, or I say reign, during Isaiah's ministry, um, these uh, there's a series of kind of rising and falling empires here, but they're always a threat. They're always on the horizon, and to make matters even worse. There are some nations to the north um, who, at uh, various points, fall or uh, align themselves with with one of these empires. And so, and so, if you're in Jerusalem, uh, even if things look pretty peaceful, you don't have to look very hard to realize, you know, that you're getting squeezed and the pressure's on. And so Isaiah, uh, you know, he 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 at some points will say, "You're going to be taken over eventually." Um, and he does say that because of your sin. But then sometimes, like you remember back um, when he was uh, speaking to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, he says, you're not going to get taken over. You're looking up here at what's happening and assuming that means you need to take, make an alliance with Egypt or something like that. You don't need to do that. The Lord's going to actually rescue from it. So it's, it's, Isaiah's giving one of those two messages, either prepare for... The fact that you're going to be defeated and go into exile and learn what God requires in the midst of that. Or, trust the Lord. He's going to, he's going to deal with this. And one time, later on, this is before, or I mean, this is after the chapters we're going to look at. There, there's, it gets so bad that you remember this, probably, the Assyrian army is actually surrounding Jerusalem. I mean, they're right out there. And Hezekiah just doesn't know what to do. And, and, and that's a really poignant case where... Um, the Lord intervenes and judges. Anyway, uh, we'll get to all that, but, but that's, it's important to remember that background because all that has bearing on what's going on in 13 through 27. So let me, let me outline this for you. And um, if any of you want this, I can send it to you. Uh, I, I probably should have printed it out or something because, you know, my whiteboard um, uh, skills are, are very limited, as you know. Um, so, so, uh, but, but let me just run it through for you. And so you can at least have a sense of it. So there, there are three cycles of oracles. There are three, three times that Isaiah kind of goes around the bend with these oracles. The first cycle co- goes from 13 to 20. Um, and I, I, I'll read you the people who are included in that just so you'll get a feel for it. And you kind of think it through 
in terms of a map, and you probably have a better map in the back of your Bible. The first cycle of oracle or of oracles goes this this way: Babylon, Philistia, so like right there on the coast, Moab, over there, um, Damascus and Ephraim, so sort of north, and then Egypt down there. So the first cycle of oracles, kind of uh, roughly speaking, goes. Um, North, northeast, west, southwest, um, due west, or I'm sorry, due east, and then north, and then south. Um, so it just kind of goes all, all the points of the compass, all their enemies, and here's what the Lord's saying about them. All right, that's cycle one. Cycle two goes from 21 to 23, and it starts again with Babylon. And then, and then gives, uh, and then goes to Edom again, which is just sort of to the east. And then, and it's going to end with Tyre, but stuck in between um, Edom and Tyre is actually Jerusalem. So now think about that for a second. Think about how that works. You know, you're expecting, um, it's, it's, you know, you're expecting a sermon, another series of sermons that are all about the nations and what God's going to do. But Isaiah kind of slots in an oracle against Jerusalem. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty jarring and, and pretty significant. And then there's a third cycle, which is much more vague in a sense. It's from 24 through 27. And it, it doesn't talk about specific nations on the outside or even Jerusalem as a specific people. What it does is it, it, it introduces these two cities. Um, and there's a city of, you know, Isaiah called, refers to it in different ways, uh, meaninglessness or, or kind of chaos. And then there's a city of God. So he's taking you deeper and deeper into this cycle of sermons. The first one is fairly conventional, although we need to look at it and kind of get the details right. The first one is pretty conventional. It's, you know, all these kingdoms that are surrounding you. Here, I'm going to preach against them and tell you what they did wrong. And, and in telling you what they did wrong, I'm condemning them, but you also need to be listening because what you might find is there's a lot of Egypt in your heart and a lot of Damascus in your heart. So that's cycle one. Cycle two, he gets a little more pointed because he actually includes Jerusalem in there. You're not exempt. Your hands aren't clean. If you haven't gotten it from the first cycle, get it from this one. And then the third one, it's like this big step back where Isaiah says, actually, forget national boundaries. Forget, you know, ethnicities or, you know, whatever, however you want to divide it up. Um, he... No one would have thought in terms of race in Isaiah, but don't, don't think in terms of race or ethnicity or nations. Um, just think in terms of what God's doing with the city of God and the city of man or the city of meaninglessness. Um, that's what you need to really think about. And that could apply, and this is profound, because then, then you realize that could apply to anyone. That could apply, we don't know about such a person, but that could apply to a an Edomite who hears it, or an Egyptian who hears it. And Isaiah is going to talk later on in his book about Gentiles being brought in. And so that third cycle is so relevant for us because you say, 
wow, what Isaiah's done is he's laid it out and said, it's not really, a, well, not, I'm not really talking about Jerusalem and Egypt. I'm talking about the city of, city of God and the city that leads to chaos or meaninglessness. All right, so three sermon series, three cycles that he's going to go through that are, uh, that are highly organized and that kind of like, ramp up the, 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 the application pressure. Um, first, it's there if you have ears to hear. Second, he's talking to you. And then third, it's, it's this really stark spiritual contrast. So that's what we get to in 13 through 27. It's the most concentrated, interestingly enough, it's the most concentrated sermon series or actual preaching, proclamation of Isaiah. The, the rest of the book is sort of intermixed, like Isaiah's on the scene and something happens and he's talking to a king and, and you know, a sermon comes out of that. But, but this, is just, this is just like, the, this is the sermon series right here in the middle of the book. And it lays out all these really important themes. Does that make sense a little bit? I, like I said, I can send it to you. Um, and you can just have the exact uh, details and the verses and everything. But that, that's how it breaks down. Okay, so, so let's look at the first one. Um, and, and, and what I want, actually want to do in this first cycle is look, at, um, is look at the first sermon in the series, which is the oracle concerning Babylon, for chapter 13. And then if we have time... And we may not have time, but if we have time, I want to look at the last sermon in that sermon series, which is the oracle against Egypt. Now, again, think about, think about this geographically. Why, is this, why, why does he begin with Babylon and end with Egypt? Because those are the perennial great powers. Those are the perennial kind of enemies, the bookends for Israel. Yes, there's Philistia, Edom, Moab, Damascus, etc. They're there. They play roles at different points in Israel's history. But the big issue, if you live here, uh, the big geopolitical issue is always what's going on here in the Tigris-Euphrates region, what's going on here in the Nile. And that, humanly speaking, politically speaking, is everything. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Uh, all the other things are just sort of dominoes that fall because of that. So he's going to begin here and to get end here. Those are the bookends. Does that make sense? All right. Let's look at the beginning and the ending. Because, again, remember what I said, if you're really, if you're really sitting under Isaiah's preaching and you're hearing what he's saying, you're, um, you, you, and this is how we should be with everything. Even if, um, you know, if, if, uh, Pastor Phillips is talking about something out there, you know, in the in the world. You, you should always be saying, "Okay, but how much of that is in here, like, or, or in here, really?" Um, and and that's what we should be doing with this. So we're going to start with Babylon, and the question is, he gives this he gives this outline of this terrible sequence of events. The terrible. I, I, I'll summarize it a little bit this terrible sequence of events that's going to befall Babylon. Um, I'm not going to read every verse. On a bare hill, verse 2, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. 
the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And it goes on to describe all the ways in which the Lord is, is going to do it. And, and look at what's going to happen. Let's get really specific. Verse 17, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, etc., etc. Okay, so you get the picture. The picture is Babylon's going to be destroyed. And as much as at that moment... It did not look that way. Babylon looked like a clear and present danger to Jerusalem and Judah. But the reality was Babylon was going to be destroyed. And I want to make two points about it, about the destruction of Babylon. Um, and, and then kind of ask a question. The, the first point I want to make is, and this is consistent throughout all of these oracles. God's always the one who's doing it. God's always the one who takes full responsibility for it. Now, now, we'll see that he uses means to do that, but he always takes ownership. So, in other words, um, God doesn't like keep himself at arm's length from this destruction. I mean, he is. if there's one thing you cannot miss in all this, these cycles of sermons and oracles, if there's one thing you can't miss is that God's in control of everything that happens. He's, he's not just determining it, not just predicting it. That's true, but that's sort of weak language for this. He is, he's doing it. It's his work that's, that's making this happen. So, you know, that's a, that's a philosophy of history right there. That God's in control. He's sovereign over all things. Uh, and he'll say as much at various points. You know, he'll universalize that. But, but you kind of, you should figure that out from reading this. Everything that happens to Babylon is in God's hands. Now, it's, it, there's, there's a kind of irony there because if you're in Babylon and you don't know anything about the Lord or don't care anything about the Lord, that's the last thing you're thinking. You might think your gods are in charge or you might even think you're in charge or your king is in charge or you've got to make the right decisions. But at the end of the day, the Lord's going to do this. He's the one who's totally in charge of the whole thing. So, so God's sovereignty is pronounced. But the other thing I want to note from verse 17 is that how does God do this? How does God work in the world? We know he's sovereign over all things. We preach that. This is part of our, you know, sort of the, at the very, very heart of, of, of what we believe. Um, but, but how does he do it? Well, he uses means. and He raises up people to do it. Um, in this case, he raises up the means to do it. Now, the question is not raised here in Isaiah 13, but 
it could be a question that you might raise in your minds. It is raised elsewhere in Isaiah, and it's raised elsewhere in the prophets. And the question might be something like this. Well, are the Medes any better? Or, or you know, you look at, you look at how the, this, this cycle goes, and you go, are any of these, like, qualitatively better than the others? And the answer really is no. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is, God raises up kingdoms and nations for his purpose. When they've served his purpose, it's It's over. Um, and, and that's, that's it. That's the whole, that's kind of the whole philosophy of history. God raises up nations. He lets them flourish for as long as it serves his purposes. When it no longer serves his purposes and his purposes are better served by judging them and raising up the next nation, that's what happens. Um, and that's what we see here. So God's sovereign over all things and God's, um, in, in control of all things. I just noticed there's an American flag over there. Am I supposed to be doing something with that for this, for this Sunday school? <laughs> I wasn't sure. <coughs> anyway, I'm sure there's a good reason why. It's an artifact of history. Okay, that's uh, fine. I, I, no, no, I, I'm not. I'm not opposed. I just, just I just noticed as so I'm talking we, about nations rising up. And we can apply all all of what you're saying to today. Of course, yes. This is this is the this is the great. Um, so Augustine, in his book City of God, he writes it. He writes it in response to the fall of Rome. And what he does is he doesn't just give a short answer, why did Rome fall? He gives a long answer, which is a biblical view of history. And what he does, and he actually takes language from this third cycle of oracles. And he says, here's the thing. There's a city of God and a city of man. And the city of man is actually multiple cities. And so, yeah, what happens in the city of man? God rises up, raises up empires. Eventually they become proud, sinful. Their sin gets so bad that it serves God's purposes better to, to destroy them and to raise up the next one for his own purposes. Not necessarily meaning that the, the subsequent one is better or more righteous or more godly. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, but that's, that's what he does. It's all in his hands. So yeah, it still applies today for sure. It's the same, same view of history we should have. Now, we can't do what Isaiah did and, and know it and pinpoint what's going on and, 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 and what the lifespan of our, of our culture is going to be. We don't know that. Um, it could be very, you know, it could be a very short horizon. It could be a very long horizon. In God's view of time, that's sort of very different from ours. Um, Roman Empire sustained for a long time in great wickedness. Babylonians come and go for a long time in great wickedness. Egypt, for goodness sake, Egypt is sustained for thousands of years in great wickedness and opposition to God's people. But that's the basic, that's the basic formula. So, um, now, now, that, now that's the question. So the first, the observations I wanted to make, God is sovereign, he uses means. But the question I want to ask is, and, and you know, I know I didn't read everything, is... Um, why? What's the explanation for these terrifying events? Why is God going to do this? Why will they be dismayed? Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Like they're looking, we can't believe this happened. We're being totally destroyed. Um, what, what reasons, if any, are given for what they're you know, their their problem was. The day of the Lord is coming. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, right? Ultimately, it's, this is God's plan, right? So if you want to give a kind of uh, full thing, it's it's God's judgment. It's, it's the day of the Lord. 
And so when the day of the Lord comes, it comes. And you, you, can't, you can't do anything about it. What does it say? Is there anything that's said about um, their... Go ahead, yeah. Verse 11. Yeah, 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 good. That's, that's, really, that's really a key verse, isn't it? Look at what he says about Babylon. I will punish the world for its evil. Okay, that's very broad. And the, wicked, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous proud of the ruthless. And this was actually what Augustine said too. He said, the ultimate sin that God always brings down an empire for is pride. Um, and, it, and that's sort of woven into it, empires, I guess. Um, it's sort of part of what makes them tick. But, but that's Babylon's issue. Babylon will be brought down on the day of the Lord, uh, and it, and it's wickedness, and if there's one sin, it's pride. And you know, this is so um, significant for us, because I may have said this before, I can't remember. Um, you know, you know that phrase that's repeated twice in the New Testament? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And have you ever stopped to think about that for a minute, and thought, thought to yourself, what would that be like to be opposed by God? What 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 does that mean to say you know? So so I'm I I work I have a family I'm engaged in you know some ministry things and projects and you know, whatever. Um, God opposes me in each of those. Wow, that's what about what if God opposed you in your work? God opposed you in your relationships. God opposed you in your um, in your schoolwork. Uh, God opposed you as you're trying to build a career. God is against you in the development of your talents and gifts. That's, that's heavy. Um, and, but that's what, that's what the Bible says. God opposes the proud. And Babylon, it's like everything they did, every great, you know, architectural marvel, military insight, uh, you know, political calculation. At the end of the day, God is opposed to them in all of that, and He's going to just sort of bring it all crumbling down. That's a very that's that's where you start to say, okay, He's talking about Babylon, but I probably need to really look carefully at my own heart because if that's what God does to pride on a big scale, it's also what He does to pride on a small scale. Yeah, how about Christian religion? Yeah, I mean, right? It's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a terrible thing. Um, John Stott said in the Christian life, um, pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. And again, preface that in the Christian life. So it's always a root issue that we have to get at in our hearts, and it manifests itself in different ways. It manifests itself in desire. Desiring one's own interests above the interests of others. Remember, Paul says that in Philippians 2. It, it, it manifests itself in wanting others to serve you. know, you. That's what Jesus deals with in Mark 10. The Gentiles rule it over them, lord their authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. So, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great danger. It's a, it's a great threat. We are, we are by nature um, prone to be uh, self-aggrandizing, self-glorifying—that's what we love, um, and 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 that that doesn't always manifest itself as pride, sort of sticking your nose up in the air, looking down on other people. Sometimes it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. 
it, but it's there. Um, that's why you're doing what you're doing, and that's how you're thinking. So it always happens once in every class. You all right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, it's just an occupational hazard in this room. Um, okay. So, Babylon, pride. The Lord's going to bring them down. Now, let's look at, um, <clears throat> we don't have a ton of time to do this, but let me just look very briefly at Egypt at the end. Just the bookend one. Um, and the question I want to ask is, what does this look like in Egypt? How's God going to bring it down? In Babylon, he's going to raise up other tribes and nations against them. And they're not going to believe it, but it's going to happen. In Egypt, it's a little bit different um, how God's going to show his judgment. Um, verse ni- chapter 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Uh-oh. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up, listen to how it's described. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will fight each against each other and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their counsel. So in other words, there's going to be profound division, profound hatred. They're going to be after each other. He's not raising up enemies from the ends of the earth to come into Egypt. There are other ways to bring about judgment. In this case, Egyptian against Egyptian. And I will, verse 4, Give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And then look at what he does. So they're against each other. They're ripping each other apart. A strong man comes up, but this is going to be bad for them. And then he destroys their economy. Look at verse 5. The waters of the sea will be dried up and, and, and the river will be dry and parched. And by the way, if you go through Egypt, I mean, it's stark. You can, if you, if you are, if you are floating up the Nile River, and you look, you can see, I don't know how many miles, but you can see it's flat. So you can see a certain number of miles, 10, 12, 15, 20 miles, I'm not sure. And it's green, and it's beautiful. And then it's like it just stops, and it's desert. It's, there's no in-between. It's, it's beautiful right around the river, uh, you know, for miles and miles, very fertile, very fruitful. And it's sort of the breadbasket for not only that nation, but again, for kind of... Oh, large parts of the Mediterranean for a while. But then it just stops. But if that river dries up, then it's just desert. It's back to it's back to ground zero. Um, the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched and its canals will become foul because you know they did all this irrigation to get there. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, at the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile. And they will languish forever, who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair. And the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed. And all who pay, who work for pay will be grieved. Um, and here's how, people are, here's how Pharaoh's counselors are going to deal with it. Just listen to this. The princes of Zon are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of, a, of the wise, a son of the ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools. The princes of Memphis are deluded. 
Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Now, so Now, the reason why I put these as bookends, well, Isaiah puts them as bookends, but the reason why we're looking at them is they're, they're very different, aren't they? Babylon, just when it's at its height, most proud, the Lord opposes, brings in uh, an enemy, or actually raises up an enemy from within. Egypt, very different. Egypt's looking around, and there's no real enemy on the horizon. Nobody's going to come from here. If we get all the way through, um, nobody's coming from down here. So, but how? Do, but God's going to destroy them anyway. How's he going to do it? Well, they have all this wisdom. They have all this accumulated knowledge from centuries and centuries of how to do business and how to make the land fertile and how to govern the people well. And they had, and they had achieved that to a large extent, probably to a greater extent than any empire since. Uh, and and uh, and yet, what's God going to do? Well, he can dry up the Nile, and he's going to do that, at least part of it, so they won't be able to plant. And he can make all these wise men who for generations and generations have governed Egypt in a, in a, in a wise way, confused, not knowing what they're doing, at odds with each other, so the people are butting heads with each other. And that, too, is a kind of destruction. But either way, it's the same thing. Who's behind it? Is it because the counselors suddenly became a lot stupider that generation than they were before? Or is it, you know, is it the change in the climate? Well, who knows what means the Lord uses, but at the end of the day, it's the Lord who's doing all of it. And, and he's doing it for the same purpose because he's determined to judge Egypt. So what, how are you supposed to take that on board for yourself or if you're in Jerusalem at that, when Isaiah preaches the sermon or even today? Well, you're, you're supposed to say, look, even if you somehow think, which I don't think any of us are foolish enough to think, but even if you somehow think, I, I, I'm, not, I'm kind of isolated. I'm not really susceptible to enemies. Well, you know what? The Lord can do things inside you, and, and, and he can wreck. He can, if he opposes you, it, it, it gets, you can, there are any number of ways he can do what he's going to do. It could be an enemy who comes after you and destroys you, or it could be internal. Um, either can happen. You know, we, we think in the church, for instance, we, we might think, well, boy, the culture really closing in. It's getting worse and worse. Boy, it might get harder and harder to be a Christian. It might be harder and harder to be a church. That's true. That could happen. No, I'm not gainsaying that. But you know what else can happen? He could just rip us up from the inside. Same thing. Um, it, it's, it, in fact, that's probably more likely uh, from the the... the standpoint of church history so so this is the message that isaiah has given to his people and you should be in jerusalem thinking okay thank you for showing this to me out there so that now i can repent in here and and really follow the lord and serve him earnestly i think the word implode for that yeah yeah that's good that's exactly what happens i mean the, it, it, he pulls away the resource and it just implodes and no one can quite explain it why are cities going against each other it's not in their best interest. I don't know, but the Lord's causing it to implode. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Um, so that's that's cycle one. We can come, we can circle back and look at some of the other uh, oracles in cycle one. But my plan would be to um, to continue on with these cycles. And again, if you want this stuff, just email me. I'll give it to you. I may try to remember to send it to you, but I'm going to be I'm leaving tomorrow to go away for a while. So. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't make any promises beyond it. And I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other. All right. Let me. Let me pray. Lord, you're so gracious to us, merciful and kind, and um, we we thank you for it. Uh, we also thank you, especially for your word. Uh, we would be in the dark without this. We need these sermons preached to us. So thank you for doing that, and and. Please convict us. May we not be like those who look in a mirror and then immediately forget what we've seen, but may we be both hearers of the word and doers of the word. Do this by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.